0: Aguilera, Boys to Men, Simon and Garfunkel, and I'm sure Taylor Swift somewhere has done it or will do it. So this is one of those songs that, like everybody and their grandmother, kind of records this song. It's really that famous. Now, it was first performed, Silent Night was first performed in 1818, okay? That's a couple of years ago, 1818, and it was done in a St. Nicholas Parish church in Oberndorf, Austria. And the po- Silent Night started out as a poem. So this priest by the name of Joseph Moore penned this poem. He had six verses originally. We've pushed aside three of them. We only use three today. And Joseph Moore did this. He wrote the poem. A couple of years later, he visited one of his friends, a guy named Franz Gruber, and he said to Franz, can you put some music to this poem that I have called Silent Night? So Franz Gruber was a guitarist, and he sat down, and in two hours, he wrote all the music to Silent Night. Later, in 1818, on Christmas Eve, for the very, very first time, the song was sung in that church I just mentioned. Now, a lot of people wondered, why wasn't it done with an organ? And there's some interesting stories around that, because apparently that was like the thing in the day, right? That was your electric guitar back then. And uh, there was a couple of rumors. One is that the mice ate the bellows and it wouldn't work very well. The second one was that the church ru- uh, flooded and it was all rusty and wouldn't work. We now believe that actually the original intent behind Silent Night was that it would be sung to a guitar. So 135 years ago, for the very first time, it was sung. Now, it's kind of a lullaby, isn't it? La-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. Now you know why I wasn't in the kids' choir. and They did a great job. Da-da-da, that kind of a song. So let's go through the words. Let me just remind you. By the way, here's, here's a picture of Joseph Moore um, The dude who wrote the words. Here we go. Silent night. Silent night. All is calm. All is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace. Sleep in heavenly peace. Silent night, holy night. Shepherds quake at the sight. Glories stream from heaven afar. Heavenly hosts sing, Alleluia. Christ the Savior is born. Christ the Savior is born. Silent night, holy night, Son of God, love's pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face, with the dawn of redeeming grace, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Silent night. Silent silent night. Joseph Moore was a priest, so I don't think he understood what happens when babies get born. It's not a silent night, right? I mean, they're screaming and howling and tears and crying, and I'm just talking about Joseph. (laughs) It's it's bad, right? I mean, it it can get really, really that. I've been there. I know exactly what I'm talking about, okay? But you'll notice in the song that he repeats this six times, silent night, 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 night. And at the same time he's talking about this darkness that's there, he contrasts it with this brightness, right? Uses the word bright, all is bright, glories stream, loves pure light, radiant beams. He talks about the dawn. So there is in this Christmas carol a contrast between darkness and light, between darkness physical darkness and physical light, but spiritual darkness and spiritual light, social darkness, social light. He's drawing this comparison in the carol, and I think that's important for us to know. There is darkness in the world, and yet there's light, and the light is this baby that's been born. So into a world of darkness, into a world of difficulty, into a world of trouble, into a world of war and pain and all of that, a baby's been born, and this baby is what? This baby is hope. This baby is possibility. This baby is going to change things. Christ, the Savior, is born. So Christmas is the arrival of this superhero baby, this deliverer baby, this rescuer baby, this Savior baby. So Silent Night is written to help us remember that someone has come to push the darkness away. And the one who's come to push the darkness away is a baby. The the song comes from Luke chapter 2, where Dr. Luke records the account. I want to read it to you in chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. Let me remind you of what's being stated here, because this is where Joseph Moore got his, his thoughts and his idea around the carol. It goes like this. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. By the way, that's the opening line that angels have. I think they're trained that way. You show up before a human, first thing you say is, do not be afraid. So it happens all the time. So that's what's happening here. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be, it's kind of like a double-double, right? Good news, oh, great joy, double-double, that shall be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, the long-anticipated leader has come. Then he goes on, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. A Savior has come. A Savior has been born. What is going on here? Why do we need a Savior? Well, we need a Savior because when three things are true, number one, we're in trouble when you're in trouble. Number two, you're unable to free yourself from that trouble. And number three, there's a Savior who can deliver us from the trouble. Three things need to be true. You're in trouble, you can't get out of that trouble, and there's someone who can come along and rescue you from that trouble. Three things need to be true. Let's look at each of those three things. The first thing that's true is that we are in trouble. So when I was in grade 8, we lived in a place called Calendar, Ontario, which is up near North Bay, if you know anything about the topography, the, 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 the geography of Ontario. And um, we lived outside of Calendar, which was a little village of about 1,000 people. We lived out in the middle of nowhere. And it was the spring of the year when I was in grade 8 at this particular time. And my buddy Tommy and I decided that what we were going to do was we were going to go spearfishing. So we got our spears all together, and we headed down toward Lake Nipissing, but we wanted to go to the creeks, because that's where the the fish would be, the bigger fish. So we got to the creeks, and when we got to the creek, we couldn't find any big fish. They were just little minnows, and those aren't fun to spear. It's really hard to spear spear them when they're that tiny, right? And so we go, start looking around, we're going, why aren't there any big fish here? Something's wrong. So... We headed down the creek, we meandered through all the bush, heading down towards Lake Nipissing because we were wanting to know why the fish weren't coming up from Lake Nipissing to spawn in the, in the creek. Well, we got down close to Lake Nipissing and discovered there was a ginormous beaver dam. Our great Canadian mascot, the beaver, had been at work. He'd gotten all the trees and the bush and the mud and everything and he built this massive dam so that the water from the creek, instead of flowing into Lake Nipissing, had managed to make this massive pond. So we thought, we've got to free the fish to come up the creek, so we're going to tear that beaver dam down. And it was massive. So Tommy and I got on the dam, and we started working away. And I can remember pulling branches and using our spear to pry up st- sticks and leaves and everything else. And all of a sudden, where I was standing, the dam gave way. And I dropped down into the dam and got my legs caught between some of the branches. And the force of the water behind me pushed me over so that I was almost straight out like this, and I was underneath the water, and I'm trying desperately to grab things, and I'm poking things with my spear. Spoiler alert, I didn't die, okay, just so you know. (laughs) What happened? I'm doing all this kind of thing, and I'm underneath the water, and it's cold. It's like snow still on the ground, and I know I'm done. Like, I'm going to die. Well, Tommy comes along the top of the dam, and he finds me, and he reaches down into the water, grabs the back collar on my winter coat, and pulls me up so that I could start breathing and I'm spitting and spewing and the water's going everywhere and I'm breathing and then he kept hanging on to me and I climbed up on the top of the beaver dam and there I was absolutely drenched, soaking wet, but happy to be alive. But I'm in grade eight and I'm not the brightest bulb on the tree so we kept working away on that beaver dam until finally (laughs) we got it taken care of and uh, the fish could come up and we were able to do our thing that particular day. So I was in trouble, I couldn't rescue myself but I had Tommy, my little ass savior, who came along and reached down and rescued me from that situation. This is, in essence, what I believe the Christmas carol, Silent Night, is about. The first truth that I think we need to remember is that we are in trouble. We're in trouble. Human beings are in trouble. There is a darkness in the world. Would you not say that's true? And we look at the wars that are going on. Oh, not another war. And we look at the... the the marches that are happening, and we look at other things like shootings and rape and incest and child pornography, child abuse, stealing and families breaking up and slavery and sickness and funerals and so on and so on, and the thing that we conclude is that the world is in trouble, it's in trouble, something is desperately wrong. And as we look out through the window at the world, we also recognize that when we look into a mirror, we look at our own selves, not just the world out there. When we realize we're in trouble, too. There's something about us that's dark. There's something about us that isn't right, something that's not healthy, right? In fact, most all of us have a certain line of what we believe to be right and wrongs, or things the way I want to live and things the way I don't want to live. And what's weird is that all of us don't even achieve the, our own standard of right and wrong. So we know there's something wrong with us. We are in trouble We're in deep trouble. Uh, Years ago in London, England, the Times, the London Times, sent out a question. The question was asking people to write in, what's wrong with the world? And a Christian apologist, a brilliant, brilliant man by the name of G.K. Chesterton, responded to the ad this way. Don't you love his hair? He wrote, what's wrong with this world? I am. I am the one who's wrong with this world. Plato, years before, had written this. In all of us, even in good men, there is a lawless, wild beast nature. In all of us, he says, men and women both, there's this lawless, wild beast nature. And he says this, he says, and there is no conceivable folly or crime which, when he has parted company with all shame and sense, a man may not be ready to commit. In other words, take away the barriers, the things that we will do as human beings are atrocious. Isaiah wrote, woe to me he said this prophet i cried i am ruined for i'm a man of unclean lips and i live among a people of unclean lips he's standing before the presence of god and he says look at me look at who i am i am in trouble i am in trouble and the apostle paul that great spiritual leader wrote every one of us have sinned and fallen short of god's glory and and i don't think it's anything that we can deny i mean you just look on the internet you look on the news and you recognize the world's in trouble man it's a mess it's a mess We're in trouble. Secondly, we're unable to free ourselves from that trouble. We struggle to somehow get to a place in our society and as individuals where we'll make things right. And all the laws we've passed, all the people we've educated, all the armies we've mobilized, all the police we've trained, all the judges we've empowered, and all the governments we've let rule have only proven that the darkness is deep and powerful and profound. We can't seem to get out of it. It's difficult for us to do that. And sometimes what we'll do in the world when we look around the world and we look at ourselves is we'll try and say, well, maybe this is just normal and i got to get used to this. This is just the way that it is. Or we'll come up with a number of excuses as to why we act the way that we do or why the world is the way that it is. Sometimes we redefine it redefine what's going on for example see there's this word called sin can you say it with me please sin sin is this pesky little word that we really don't like we don't like the word sin we try to avoid the word sin our culture doesn't like it it's just that crazy little word like we just don't use it so for example you're speeding and a police officer pulls you over and you roll your window down and he looks at you and says you were doing 85 and a 30 you were sinning and I'm going to charge you because of your sin. Now, he doesn't say that, right? And you don't get the visa bill at the end of the month when you forgot to pay for it, pay it off, off. and it doesn't say in big, bold letters, you were, were sinning, you didn't pay your bill, right? I mean, he doesn't do that. We don't use that word that way, right? Instead, the word that we like to use is the word mistake. We are a culture that likes that word. Instead, okay, I made a mistake. What's the big deal? I made a mistake, I'm sorry. I'll do better the next time. We don't like the word sin. We prefer the word mistake. We know there's something not right, but we wanna down, dumb down the language, right? We wanna dumb down the language. Because when we use the word sin, we think of accountability. We think of consequences. We think of maybe God and what that means that we violated something that God would have wanted us to do differently. When we think of a mistake, we think of an error. We think of poor reasoning. And you don't punish someone for a mistake. It's like a, I'll do it over better the next time. So we dumb down the language to get there. You caught me with him. It was a mistake. I'm sorry. You caught me messing around with my expense account. I fudged my numbers a bit. It was a mistake. You caught me. I'm sorry. It won't happen again. I remember a few years ago, I was reading an article about a murder that took place in western Canada. And a husband had murdered his wife and buried her body in the backyard. He got caught, was going through the process with the judicial system, and they interviewed, and, and he got sentenced, and they interviewed the mother of the wife that was killed. And in the conversation of her expressing or explaining what her son in law had done by murdering her daughter, she said, It was a mistake. And I th- stood, remember reading it thinking, A mistake? What do you mean it was a mistake? How can you say that about your own daughter? If we dumb down everything so that it becomes a mistake, I don't need a savior. I just need a do-over. I just a sorry. And if everything that I do is a mistake, then I'm a mistaker, right? That's who I am. I'm just a mistaker. I'm a mistaker. I'm not a sinner. And if I'm not a sinner... As I already said, I don't need a savior. But we know that deep down inside, the the better word is sinner, that we are a sinner, that we do violate God's laws, even as I mentioned already, our own. There's something going on inside of us. Mistakers on the surface, sinners underneath the surface. It seems to be more about what happens inside of me. It's deeper, it's more honest. If you see yourself as a mistaker only, then you're on your own. You can take care of yourself, and it's all right. But if you see yourself as a sinner, you realize, I'm in trouble. I can't get out of this. I can't get out of this spot where I am. And you need a Savior. You need Jesus. You need this gift of a baby who came. Sinners know deep down inside that they need help. Mistakers don't want to admit that. And mistakers will dumb down their actions so they don't feel bad about who they are or what they've done. But they're living in denial. When we do that, and we are prone to do that, we're living in denial over the reality of who we are. We do make mistakes, right? But we are sinners. We are. All of us are. We sin. And the sooner that we admit that we're a sinner, the sooner we're able to get a Savior to help us. As long as we stay as mistakers, that's never going to happen but when you admit I'm I'm in trouble and I can't get out of this thing on my own, I need some help, then you're on the verge of experiencing the freedom and the joy and the guilt-free relationship and intimacy with your Father. You're then able to be everything that God intended you to be on the road to that for sure. We're in trouble. We're unable to free ourselves from that trouble. There is a Savior who has come to deliver us. And that's where Christmas comes in. So Joseph Moore in the song Silent Night uses a number of terms to define or drive home this truth that we needed a Savior. There's two in particular I want to focus on. One is the word virgin. He uses that, right? And the other is the word Savior. He uses that very, very word. And you've got to pull the two together to understand how it is that this baby fits what we need as a Savior, right? Christmas is about a virgin, who gave birth to a Savior, and both of those words are critical. Here's the question. Why does it matter that Jesus does not have an earthly father, and why is that an essential requirement for him to be our Savior? Why is that important? Now, we talk about the virgin birth, but technically it's the virgin conception. And the reason that Mary, as a virgin, conceives or, why God chose her as a virgin is so that obviously something to do with her character for sure. She was highly favored, but also to demonstrate the fact that this birth is extremely unique. There's never been another one like it. But not only to demonstrate that, but to fulfill a prophecy that happened a long time before. So, we go all the way back to the beginning, to the very first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. And in chapter 3 in the book of Genesis, after Adam and Eve have messed things up and catapulted themselves and all their offspring into darkness, separation from God, God comes along and makes a statement to the evil one about something that's going to happen down the road. And you'll notice what it reads. It says, and I will put enmity, or another way of thinking is I will put hostility between you, the evil one, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So he's saying that there's someone who's going to come and that one who's going to come is going to crush you. You'll hurt him. You'll hurt his heel, but he'll ultimately crush you. The New King James Version translates the passage this way. And I will put enmity, hostility between you, Satan, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, um, And you shall bruise his heel. So we've got in this passage this interesting statement about seed. And you'll notice I highlighted the word seed here. And the promise is that a woman's going to come and her seed is going to destroy Satan, destroy the evil one. Now, to understand this a little bit better, let me tell you a story. So when I was about 17 years of age, my father came into my room have to understand my dad my dad was an in your face tell you what he wanted to tell you did not have a fear in the world about anybody that was my father okay just like that kind of guy so he walks skulkingly into my room with this really really skinny book and he hands it to me and he says read that and quickly he runs out of the room well it was a book about sex <laughs> and, and that was the best he could come up with was to hand me this little skinny book so here I am, 17, right? So I'm, I'll read it. So I read the book. I think it took me an hour. It wasn't very long. Birds and bees, all kinds of things like that were in it. And I said to my dad afterwards, I could have written a better book than that one. You know, like, come on here. So if I lived way back in the Old Testament days and my father came into my room, skulkingly into my room with a rolled up little scroll and handed it to me and said, here, read this and it was about sex, I would have discovered an interesting perspective about sex that's different from what we know today. So, what the people understood in those days was that a man would plant a seed inside a woman's soil, is what they would think of it as, is her womb, and that little seed would grow into a human being. In fact, some men actually thought that the seed was actually a really, really tiny human being who would then grow inside the woman. So the woman really didn't have a whole lot to do with the baby, okay? It was really all about the man who was going to do this, and her womb needed to be strong enough or healthy enough for the baby to grow and be born. So when this, this verse is coming along and saying you know, the seed of a woman, it is throwing people for a big loop because the seed doesn't come from a woman. The seed comes from a man. And all of a sudden, there is this mystery around what on earth is being said here? What is going on? Now, when I say the word mystery, I want you to understand that this is a theological concept that theologians have when they describe certain things in the Bible, like the Trinity, for example, which is, of everything that we can see in Scripture, an absolute fact, okay, according to Scripture. It's a divine reality because the Bible says it, but we don't know how it's possible, that's what a mystery is. We understand the statement's clear, we can't wrap our heads around how it makes any sense at all. So this statement about a woman having seed is something we're going, I don't understand that. This is weird, this is different, this is unusual. But as you move your way through scripture, you begin to it unpacks itself. So for example, in Isaiah chapter 7, here's what we read. The virgin, he's prophesying 600 years before Jesus birth, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son And we'll call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So all of a sudden, you're looking at this prophet, and he's kind of filling in a little bit of the pieces of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. In Luke chapter 1, the author, Luke, pens these words. And by the way, Luke's a doctor, and I kind of wonder in his head how he's writing this, as he's discovering this, how he's thinking, okay, as himself. But here's the angel. Mary's responding How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin, and the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Mystery answered a little bit. Somehow this woman, without a male, is going to give birth to a baby, that God is going to make this happen inside of a room in ways we don't completely understand. But the mystery shows up nine months later when Jesus, the Son of God, is born. Jesus, our Savior, needed a special, unique kind of birth, and that's how he could become our Savior. And what we have now is God in the womb of this, this young girl growing. Now, I want you to think about this. God the Son becomes Jesus in the womb of this woman at conception. The Almighty God, if you read John's Gospel, and he describes the birth of Jesus, as I mentioned last week in chapter 1, and verse 14, and the Word became what? Flesh. But when he talks about the Word in the early verses, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made, and verse 14, and the Word became flesh. All of a sudden, God, the sovereign Son of God, becomes microscopic in the womb of a teenage virgin in the far flung corners of the Roman Empire. It is incredible what happens. That God would do that for us. But why? Jesus does not have an earthly father. What that means is that Jesus does not have in him that darkness that we've been talking about. The sin nature is not inside Jesus, it's not there. Why? Because he's holy. Because he's God. He's perfect. And I sometimes think about Jesus, and I think about how he lived his life, and I think, how could you not sin in your attitude and in your actions and in your affections? But he doesn't, does he? He never sins. He never, ever sins. He is God. 100% God. It's hard for us. Again, another mystery. We know the fact that he's God. That's what Scripture states. How does that even work? And over history, we have the historical development of our understanding of Jesus. And for a long time, we were thinking, well, he can't have a real body because if he has a real body, real bodies are touched. our bodies are touched by sin, so he can't have a real body, so he must have a fake body that just shows up every once in a while. And sometimes people said, well, he's like half God and half human. He puts on a body or there's like two, two beings inside of him, a human being and a God being. And actually what we have now, we understand and we, we've figured this out, got our heads around a little bit more. There is the divine nature and the human nature, and they are so entwined that they are like like one person. That's our Jesus. Crazy, amazing, isn't it? I hope the, the mystery, the wonder of the incarnation, the in-fleshness, grabs you that way. I um I have a crazy imagination, you guys. I hope you're gonna get used to it. But one of the things I like to think about is um I, I like to think of, like to think about Jesus a lot. And I was thinking, I was thinking, um, can you imagine Mary and Joseph? And I'm not sure how much they, how well they understood the fact that this boy was the creator of the universe, and all that sort of thing. I don't know how well they understood it all. But can you imagine if they did? And they have this moment, and I don't know how old Jesus is. Maybe he's seven or eight. And they say to Jesus, "Come on into the kitchen, son. Um, we've got something we need to tell you." Um, um, and 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 Joseph begins to talk, and he, he, he just tells Jesus, you know. Uh, we got this really amazing thing happen around you. Your birth is really unusual. Um, I'm I'm not your father. Um, go ahead, Mary. Tell him. <laughs> Can you imagine if that happened? Can you imagine that moment, right? I don't think it happened that way, but I think it would be kind of cool to see it if it happened that way. Um, I think that he was he was aware of that on his own. I think from God's spirit, and certainly knew when he was 12 who he was which must have been a mind-blower in and of itself, right? Because remember that Jesus grows in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. That's what Mark tells us. So he's moving along, and here he is. So back to our question. Why is it that Jesus can be our Savior? Well, he's God, so he never sinned. So he's not in trouble. Whew, that's pretty cool, right? Not in trouble. No sin. No mistakes either. <laughs> there he is. He never sinned. I did. I do. I am. Jesus says to me, I'm gonna, I, I'll take your punishment. And you can have my righteousness. Do you want that? What about everybody else, God? What about everybody else, Jesus? Well, I'm divine. I'm an eternal being. So I can die not just for yours, Ken, but I can die for everybody's. And I'm going to give my life for everybody. And if they will respond... To me and my offer of salvation they will have their sins completely forgiven their relationship with me will be one it will be right it will be beautiful their guilt will be gone and so Jesus kind of comes down to us that's why silent night is all about this and he reaches down as we're drowning and he says here's my hand are you going to take it are you going to reach up and grab my hand because I'm going to pull you up and I'm going to rescue you From any and every trouble that you've ever been in i love you and i want you to know me i want you to walk with me i want you to experience what it means to be right with me that's what i want you to do and that's what jesus did when jesus came the incarnation the in fleshness of jesus at christmas is mind-blowing it really is that god would do that for us that's how desperately deeply he loved us and not only does he become a human being at that mo- in conception in Mary's womb, and then was born nine months later, and then lived for 33 years, but Jesus is, from everything we see in Scripture, a human being forever. This was an act that he took on that would be his forever experience. So I now have a brother in Jesus who is fully human like me, and I get to live with him in the afterlife as he puts it all together. And if you're here this morning, you've never made a decision to trust in this one. As he reaches down, will you reach up and believe in him? Man, we would love for you to do that, to make that decision. Will you bow your heads with me, please? And as you're doing it, I just want to talk to you for a second and just say to you, um, we're all in trouble. And uh, we're unable to free ourselves from that trouble. But there's a Savior who did. You see, Jesus is not in trouble. And Jesus alone can save us from our trouble. But we must accept, we must believe, we must respond to him. And if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus, you never turned and said, I want you as my savior, I need you as my savior, I'm a sinner and I need you, Jesus, then today might a, is a great day for you to take that decision. And one of the ways you can do that it's all about believing in jesus there's no magic formula it's just trusting in him it's it's resting in him it's believing in him one way of expressing that is to go to him in prayer and say god i I'm, i'm i realize i'm in trouble and i realize that i can't rescue myself and i believe that jesus gave his life for me and i turn from myself toward jesus and i trust in him i want him as my sin forgiver and my life leader and um you're here this morning and that's where you're at and you want to make a decision to put your faith in Christ or you've just done that just raise your hand and and put it back down again anyone who's done that this morning thank you father for this time may the wonder of Christmas just be so real and vivid in our hearts today and over these next few days that we would just be in awe of how deep and rich and powerful your love is for us And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would take the truths that we've looked at today and make them deeply woven into the fabric of our lives. May we not just see the surfacey stuff at this time of year, but the wonder of Jesus and who he is and what he did for us. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.